Hi, I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Sam M. Walton College of Business. Welcome to Be Epic, the podcast where we explore excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality, and what those values mean in business, education, and your life today. I have with me today David Lowesby, who is with Rolls-Royce in procurement, and he is what we call a pracademic, which means that he has tremendous academic and practice experience. So while he's full-time at Rolls-Royce, he also is editor of an academic journal, co-editor of an academic journal. He publishes in academic journals, and he has been through the PhD program in behavioral sciences and has a, a tremendous background that goes, uh, it's quite, quite vast, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But David, uh, thank you for taking time to uh, visit with me today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So, David, uh, there's not a lot of academics or practitioners with the kind of mix that you have. You know, one that I think of, uh, we hired uh, Remco Van Hoke. He's a full professor of practice here and has been very productive since he's been here. And, of course, he introduced us and really thrilled to have you. I want to talk just a little bit about your your background, because I can see earlier in your career, you, you got into procurement very and purchasing very early. You spent 10 years at SmithKline Beecham in the 90s. So tell me, I'd like to hear a little bit about your transition from, you know, being a student to being in purchasing at SmithKline Beecham. And then um, how you got interested in sourcing, procurement, and purchasing. Thanks, Matt. I, th- I think um, I- I'll probably describe that as probably a, a route that-, that no careers advisor would ever have, have dreamt of, let alone uh, ascribe to a, a student. So my, my background is-, is one of a fairly uh, initially very traditional sort of uh, construction and property background as a child surveyor in my early days, but then recognizing that that wasn't going to be the end of the journey. I wanted to get into to project management and program management. So um, I obviously clearly then did another degree um, and and qualified uh, in that discipline too. But through that course, joined um, a company like SmithKline Beach and now GSK. And it was through that process and having them manage some fairly complex projects and programs across the world. So I spent uh, probably seven or eight years uh, with with SmithKline in different countries, living and working in different countries, France and um, South America. So seven countries in South America. Uh, spent some time in the U.S. and Philadelphia, where they're headquartered. And so through that sort of process, towards I would say probably the end of my time at at, uh, at SmithKline Beach and GSK, then they said, well, actually, we we tried to do all the procurement for all the the complex, you know, capital spend and, and equipment and things like that. And we failed twice. So we thought we'd ask somebody that's actually lived it and breathed it for the last eight years. So they actually invited me to come up, come along and, and take the VP and director role for uh, global procurement. And so that's exactly what I did. And that was my, my flip then into procurement. So probably like many people in procurement, I suppose I became a, an accidental sort of um, candidate in the, in the procurement space. But what it, what I brought about was, I would call it a hybrid approach to the then fairly sort of 
standard sort of system and process approach to, to procurement, but actually then I'll call it sort of hybridize that then to fit what, not just the company required, but then that particular market space. And it was through that and because of my global experience that um, I made a success of it. But in the process of doing that, recognize that big thing that, that really uh, I'd recognized and, and had done for many years was actually change and transformation, albeit in a procurement space. Most people recognize that actually doing professional procurement and supply chain management often means then that you have to to make efficiencies and to make gains, you have to do something differently. And therefore that's effectively change management at the heart of it. And so through that process, I then became a specialist in change and transformation, but with a, I'll call it with a procurement badge. Um, and through that process, I then worked in many, many different sectors, um, including pharmaceuticals, but also banking, retail, FMCG, manufacturing, engineering fleet uh, and the vehicle space uh, in particular and more recently aerospace and defense so I, I would probably classify myself as sector agnostic therefore the skills that i bring are, are truly about change and transformation but with a procurement and supply chain um, angle or lens and i think because of that about 15 years or so ago i realized that particularly as i'd, I'd just been into two board meetings where I presented a case for doing something that was very logical and rational, only to find that actually the decision that, that was uh, delivered by the board was something completely different to what the, the facts and figures told me. And it's through that then that I began to realise that actually there was another dimension, which was the, the human dimension of, of behavioural science. And so that, that was the journey for me then of a, I'll call it a new academic strand, probably because I was so passionate about it. I, I actually resigned as a CPO for three months, wrote a book and then picked up a new CPO role, Chief Procurement Officer role straight after that. So I guess it's something that I've I've always been recognised for as being the person that fuses behavioural science with procurement and supply chain management. And I guess that's where I've centred on and that's where some of my, my academic research has certainly taken me. Uh, in fact, you mentioned um, Remco earlier. In fact, actually, we, we recently produced um, two academic papers that are now going through the review process together, uh, which, believe it or not, we produced two papers in about three or four months. So it's centred around the saliency of the pandemic that we're going through at the moment. And so I guess my career is probably a bit of a shaggy dog story as we, as we refer to it in, in the UK. You know, when I look at your background, probably the the biggest sort of outlier would be banking, <laughs> um, from what I could tell. But I could imagine your experience in banking would be quite helpful in terms of supply chain management and purchasing. But uh, like you say, you, you, you don't plan your career, uh, but sometimes the twists and turns, may, while they may not be obviously helpful in the short run do help in the long run i was just curious we haven't talked about this but i was just curious about your take on your experience in banking yeah it's, it's a very interesting one actually and i think um as you would imagine in the banking sector there there's a huge focus on risk because obviously you know the banks are lending companies large sums of money in fact it was quite interesting as the change director for for barclays bank I was actually asked to join the risk committee and through that process got to understand the whole KYC, the know your customer sort of process, understand the risk, I'll call it modeling and profiling and some of, some of the more strategic decisions around lending. 
And I think that for me that the parallels actually have, have, have held true in, in, many, in many, many instances. And risk is, is no stranger to that. I think, again, getting a deep understanding of risk, risk methodology, the newer enterprise risk management um, approach, all of those things start to then make absolute sense when you recognise and understand, I'll call it the core principles and the approaches in these areas, because there is a huge amount of transferable skills and, and approaches that can be taken from sector to sector. And I guess that's why over many years I've always argued and hopefully successfully that within three months, taking the, the transferable skills that you have, you should be able to be uh, operating effectively in, in another sector. And I think that that is the one thing that I'll probably say to most people coming through their career that I've mentored over the years, which is don't don't be frightened about moving sector to get experience. Don't don't be frightened about sort of sometimes going into areas where you think, oh, my, like, you know, have I really, really agreed to do this? That's just a huge learning opportunity. And you become as an individual hugely more valuable because you have this breadth and depth um, understanding of, of a subject or a topic. And I've had a number of people on this podcast recently, especially some alumni who are CEOs of companies now, where they were talking about one in particular, and he, uh, in his career, he got his MBA from here. He was very intentional early in his career, not to just taking vertical promotions, which would help financially in the short run, but rather to take lateral moves and even lateral moves at other companies uh, because he wanted to improve his general management experience so that he, I mean, he knew he wanted to be CEO someday when he got his MBA here. I just thought it was interesting that he was that intentional, you know, from early on. That's a hard thing to do. Sometimes it happens to people accidentally, sometimes intentionally, but there is a lot of value in having a wide variety of experiences. Absolutely. And I think it's something that I can I can totally understand and resonate with because having done a couple of lateral moves myself, and in fact, I, I remember once being challenged by a colleague of mine saying, why are you doing that? I think the expression he used was something like, how can you afford to do that? And I turned around to him, I said, how can I afford not to do that? I said, because I'm not thinking of today, I'm thinking of tomorrow. What I articulated to, the, to this colleague of mine, I said, I can accept this for two years or three years or how long it may be. And accept the fact that somebody may make a, what I call a diagonal move slightly upwards. I said, but when I make my next move, I will leapfrog over the top of you. Because I set out, I said, I want to be the director of an organization before I hit 40. I want to be there by my mid thirties as an executive director, which I achieved, thankfully. But I think having that tenacity and having that that vision, in fact, I actually even sat down and wrote myself a 10-year plan. It didn't go exactly to plan, but elements of it certainly fell into place. And I think it was the recognition that I'd already mentally prepared myself for lateral moves. I'd already prepared to sort of think about other sectors. I'd already prepared to think, you know, thinking outside the box. But I think what it is is about thinking about what are the possibilities and not being constrained by it's, it's classic Herbert Simon bounded rationality, isn't it? You know, let's not be bounded by the rationality that we have today. 
let's think about what the possibilities are beyond where we are today. And I think, you know, I reflect on some people who, you know, in my terms, would be very academically naturally gifted. I mean, I remember a guy when I did my my college studies, he could wipe the floor with me every day of the week, but he didn't have that vision. He didn't have that tenacity. He didn't have that work ethic. And so, you know, almost like a like a candle in a sense, he fizzled out, you know, after a period of time because he just didn't have that factor that said, I'm going to get to where, where, in a sense, my capabilities will allow me to get to. And so therefore, I think it is is inherent in in many people, particularly when you're buried in the midst of, you know, a, a midterm exam or whatever it happens to be thinking, wow, you know, these are pretty dark days. I'm working, I'm studying nights, weekends, um, you know, I have no money, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You've got, you've got to get beyond that. You've got to have the mental stamina to get beyond that and see see through to the other side. So, David, you're now with Rolls-Royce and Sir Henry Royce is uh, well known for saying, take the best that exists and make it better. And I think, you know, it's interesting to think about the brand. You know, the brand of Rolls-Royce is quite remarkable. Things that come to mind when you think of Rolls-Royce, regardless of the product line, right? What comes to mind is hand craftsmanship, finest materials, masterful skill, right? And luxury. Those are some of the things that come to mind. And, you know, that's the essence of Rolls-Royce. And it's so important to Rolls-Royce that it has to be in all aspects of the company. How does that affect supply chain management and purchasing? I th- I'd, I'd say it's probably ubiquitous across the organization in terms of the fact that everybody recognizes, I'll call it the, the heritage and the, and the brand cachet. And I think everybody uh, recognizes that. Um, how can I put it? proud to be to be working for Rolls-Royce so I think I think that's a it's an enduring characteristic of anybody and everybody that does and and has worked for Rolls-Royce and so I think that that will never disappear because I think the the preservation of that is hugely important and I think also in, in some ways it also defines then the culture they are not as risk uh intensive as many other organizations they are more risk conservative albeit that they're pushing the boundaries of, you know, Rolls-Royce, the engineers have developed aircraft that are electric aircraft, they can fly 300 miles. And and in terms of 3D parts and modeling and that kind of thing, absolutely. But what I would say is that there is nevertheless a rigorous process underneath that that says we need to be absolutely sure before we declare that this is a viable product or a viable mechanism or innovation or, or whatever it happens to be, that it is absolutely stress tested. Well, you know, when you think about the fact that Rolls-Royce um, has become such a remarkable engineering oriented company, it's really transformed over the, the decades. But to think that currently just in civil aerospace, there's over 13,000 engines in service around the world. And these are engines that have to be fail-proof 
in defense, you've got 16,000 engines in service, currently in service around the world. And then, of course, you have other types of engines, power systems in general. But regardless of whether it's uh, for airplanes or what other kind of power systems, and whether it's civil or, or defense, these are things people depend on. Yeah. And when you talk about supply chain management, you know, a lot of times people don't realize how critical, a lot of times people jump to manufacturing when they think of uh, these kinds of things. But really, manufacturing is so dependent on supply chain management and procurement purchasing sourcing in general. I would imagine that when I look through your resume, I would say of, of all the companies on there, this company may require the most precision huh. of all of them, but I don't know if that's true. Uh, do you sense that in your work? I, 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 as I say, I would I would see that as being probably parallel to GSK, Smith, Klein, Beecham, because oh, of the pharmaceutical sort of rigor. And I guess in the same way, I mean, you, you look at the recent tragedy of the of the submariners in, in Indonesia, you know, where the propulsion system failed, the submarine sank to the floor and, and broke up. As you say, the, the dependency in a sense of a propulsion system, be it sub, subsurface or surface level, when you're out at sea is equally as important as an aircraft in the air. Um, and therefore, the amount of dual systems, testing, you know, even to the extent whereby we've got lots of engines that are not currently being used on aircraft, people perhaps don't realize that they have to go into a, you know, a controlled hibernation state to preserve the engine. So, you know, there are many, many things that that um, wouldn't ordinarily be considered, you know, if you had a, a car or something like that, that you had in your driveway, if you didn't use it for a year, maybe you have to switch out the battery and give it a service and change the oil, etc. But it, it'd be no big deal. It would be a very big deal if you put an aircraft in the air and hadn't run a complete and thorough recheck uh, before the aircraft left the ground. And one of the things that comes to mind for me always is, and in fact, when I think of some of the collaborations we, we, we achieved during the pandemic, you know, the whole sort of collaboration, and I use collaboration very carefully because the orchestration of skills, resources, capabilities in situations where we produced 5,000 ventilators in 12 weeks, we produced nearly 30,000 face visors in five weeks, uh, you know, for staff and for medical service. The skills, in a sense, in terms of effective listening, effective communication, collaboration skills, developing trust. And, and these are skills that are absolutely nothing associated with the STEM skills that we have in terms of, you know, systems, processes, etc. And being able to articulate knowing when to lead and knowing when to be led and all those kind of characteristics are hugely important of a modern day leader and manager and so therefore for me those those skills are are hugely hugely important david uh, what advice do you have for students that are graduating this year what i would probably say is and one of the things that i say to many people is you have to decide whether you want a career or a job and that determines then whether or not you want to continue to sort of improve yourself and this whole concept of continuous professional development is so so important irrespective of, of what role you do what level you're at what phase in your career you're at or anything like that so really really invest in yourself because 
if you don't, then you become obsolete. And that would be the worst thing that you could ever do. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Be Epic podcast from the Walton College. You can find us on Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or look for us wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. You can find current and past episodes by searching Be Epic Podcast, one word, that's B-E-E-P-I-C podcast, and now Be Epic. Be Epic.